The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Isn't it good to start a service off that way? Start a service off with baptism and be led by our children. Uh, we want to be intentional about raising up worshipers of Jesus. And so uh, you've seen that today, and uh, hopefully you have um, been blessed by what you've experienced so far. If you have a copy of God's Word... Open with me to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 3 is where we'll be today. I had told you that I was going to go back to 1 Corinthians and just plod along and would finish out the book. But um, the more I thought about it, the more I kind of sought the Lord on it, uh, I'm going to use these next three weeks to kind of prepare our hearts in the middle of Advent uh, for what does this mean, the coming of the Christ? What What does Christmas really mean? And I'll go ahead and warn you. Uh, in this passage today, in this sermon today, you're going to think, boy, he hates Christmas. I mean, he is Scrooge incarnate right there. You know, he's just, he, he, he's just in a bad mood. And I promise you, I don't hate Christmas. I love Christmas. And uh, I'm not, I don't want to leave with that impression. But I want you to know, I want us to really savor. I want us to get the full weight of what Christmas really means. In order to do that, we've got to look at some things that are, that are wrong first. Well, let's look at what's, all that's wrong in the world today. I just made a list of some things that I think we could say are wrong in our world today. Uh, it doesn't take long for you to go out in our society and realize that there seems to be a diminishing morality. Wouldn't you say that's the truth? Uh, diminishing morality. Everyone seems to be doing whatever's right in their own eyes um, or, uh, you know, some would say, well, who's to say anybody is right? Or who's to say anybody's wrong? I mean, who's the authority? Can, can we have an authority? Is there any such thing as truth? We believe there is. But I think that's sort of the position of our world today to say, whatever's right, you do what's right for you. Whatever's right for me, I'll do that. And we'll just agree to disagree. And we'll somehow get along. But it doesn't take very long to see where that leads. It leads to chaos and anarchy. There's a diminishing morality in our world today. Not only that, but we live in a society where it seems like everybody's to blame and nobody's a victim. Uh, Wouldn't you say that's the truth? Uh, I said that backwards. Everybody's a victim and nobody's to blame. That's my dyslexia kicking in. I'll blame it on that. uh, But everybody's a victim and nobody's to blame. Nobody wants to take personal responsibility for anything that they have they have done every, it's always someone else's fault. It was my parents' fault. It was my teacher's fault. It was, it was the fault of this or that. Seems to be the, the, the society or the world we're living in. Uh, you can't turn on news without hearing crime, murder. There seems to be never-ending crime and violence. War, there's always war going on somewhere in the world. There's things like human trafficking or the modern slave trade industry. And some of you may have thought, well, I thought slavery ended years ago. Um, Well, a form of it did, but there's more slavery probably happening today than ever. Um, Young teenagers and others are being kidnapped and sold into the sex trade industry. Same-sex couples are fighting for the right to marry, while heterosexual couples skip marriage altogether and just move in with one another. Divorce is common. Abuse is on the rise. Orphans have no families. Millions of babies are disposed of as medical waste while couples everywhere struggle with infertility. Everyone knows somebody with cancer. 
Our highways are littered with white crosses that mark the spot where a loved one was lost. We have diseases like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease. We have AIDS and obesity and heart disease and diabetes and all these things. Our environment sometimes seems to be out to get us with things like tornadoes and hurricanes and earthquakes and sinkholes and animal attacks. We're in the middle of recession. Unemployment is rampant. Poverty is taking over in certain parts of the world. Hunger. People are going to bed, going maybe days at a time without anything to eat. Our culture's insa- all the while, our culture's insatiable desire for more and more stuff. They're seeking to find joy in stuff or hobbies or relationships or jobs. And this was just in about five minutes or so of me sitting in my study, just listing out what I could think of that was wrong in our world. And I'm sure there are things that I've skipped over and I've missed. And today you're probably sitting there thinking, Boy, I sure am glad I got up and came to church on this Christmas uh, uh, month morning. But that's my point exactly. I list all these things going wrong in our world, and yet we look around at this time of the year, and it seems like everyone paints on this plastic smile, and songs are being played, and people are decorating their cars like reindeers. And if that's you, no offense, but you know, um, people are doing all these sort of things. And not, not all those people are pretending, but I've got to wonder if there are several of those people that are simply looking at all that's wrong with our world, and for a month they get to take a holiday from it and pretend that all's right in the world. We enter into this wonderland called Christmas. We stick our heads in the sand, and we never stop to consider why we sing songs like Joy to the World. I wonder, as I watch... Christmas vacation every year when Chevy Chase is driving out to get the family Christmas tree with his family and they're singing in the station wagon, joy to the, you know, I wonder if he really understands why there's joy to the world. Like Buddy the Elf, lots of people think the answer to all that's wrong in our world is that we need to have more Christmas spirit, that the best way to spread Christmas cheer is singing loud for all to hear. I don't want you to think that I hate Christmas. I love Christmas. I look back on my, my, my life, my childhood, and the early years with me and my wife and with our kids, and I look at Christmas as being a wonderful time, but in order for us to truly understand why this is a season of joy, then we must contrast it against the hopelessness that our world seems to experience the other 11 months of the year. And to do that, I want to take you back to Genesis chapter 3, and I want to show you what's wrong with the world. Because the answer is, is not singing loud for all to hear. The answer is not just putting on a plastic smile and pretending everything's okay. The answer was promised thousands of years before He was delivered. And I want us to see this. So read with me. I'm going to read a little bit and explain a little bit and read a little more and explain a little more as we walk through this chapter together. Chapter 3, Genesis, beginning in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Now I want to stop right there. You think, well, you're not going to get through this sermon. I promise I will. 
The serpent here is a snake. Lots of you are not fond of snakes, and you use this passage as an excuse to hate all snakes. And yes, there is there's enmity between humanity and snakes for a reason, but this is not a bad creature. This is a creature that's found in creation after God has pronounced it as being good. It just so happens here that Satan himself uses this snake, fills this snake, possesses this snake for his own purposes. The snake sometimes gets a bad rap because of this. Wallace, I'm not convincing you, am I? But uh, this is not... This is not talking necessarily about this snake and all snakes being bad. The word crafty there cannot describe that it's bad to its core because sin hasn't entered the world yet. Therefore, one of God's creatures that he's pronounced as being good cannot be crafty in a bad way until sin comes and corrupts the world. So this is Satan here using the snake in in an evil or destructive way for his own plans. Let's, Let's keep going. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, Satan here is trying to do a couple of things. He's trying to cast doubt on God's word. And he says to to Eve, did God actually say? And then notice subtly he says, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. He's trying to paint God as being stingy. That he's a liar and that he's somehow holding back from them. That he's stingy. Now look at what Eve says. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the, the fruit of the trees in the garden. God had said you can eat from every tree. Every kind of fruit. In, in every tree of the garden except one. She falls for his trickery and says we can eat of the fruit. Not every, not every tree, but the fruit from the trees. But God said, verse 3, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. She goes beyond what God says. God never says don't touch it. And maybe we should give her credit here to say she has such respect for God that she has said, I will not even come close to it. He's told me not to eat it. I won't even come close to it. I'm not even going to touch it. Maybe Adam has said to her, don't even, don't even touch it, lest you die. Even her lest you die is somewhat scaling back from what God had said. God had said, in the day that you eat it, you will surely die. She almost leaves the door open for this possibility. See, Satan comes to her in this serpent in a crafty and a tricky way, and she is entertaining conversation with him, and she is beginning to slip in his direction. Now he turns it up a notch. Verse 4, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. Now he's gone from questioning the word of God to now he is out and out calling God a liar. Oh, I know what God said, but God's lying to you. You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Now he's telling a half truth here. In a minute we're going to find out that their eyes will be opened. And they will be like God to an extent, but not to the extent that he paints that they will be. Their eyes will be open to their nakedness, and they will feel shame. But it's not what she's going after. 
He says, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Notice that Satan attacks through the appetites. She saw that it was good for food, right? There's this, this craving, this appetite for food. She looks and she says, you know what? Adam said not to touch it, but it does look like it's good for food. And then she looked at it with the lust of the eye and said, it's pretty to look at. It's a beautiful piece of fruit. And then when Satan sold her the lie that it would make her wise, she had this craving to know wisdom and to determine for herself what was right and wrong outside of God. She fell prey to his attack. Before I read through the rest of this passage, I want to show you in the rest of this passage what happened next. That sin changed our world forever unless something from the outside intervenes. I want to show you three particular ways today that sin changed our world. So that this season, when you're going about Christmas and you're singing joy to the world, and you're singing silly songs like Grandma Got Ran Over by a Reindeer and all those things, that you can... You can Weigh that against what it meant for Christ to come. First off, sin changed our relationship with God. Sin changed our relationship with God. Look at verses 8 through 10. For the first time ever, we're going to see they hide from God. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. It's interesting that the tree that they ate from when they took it from the branch in verse 7, in verse 6, and they, they ate and their eyes were open. It, the, the tree that they took it from, now they're hiding among the trees from God. They hid themselves in a, from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. How foolish of them or anybody else, then or now or in the future from now, to think that it's possible to hide from God. And this is not preacher speak. I can remember thinking back to sitting in church services and hearing sermons and hearing preachers say things like, it's impossible to hide from God and being scared to death. This is not me trying to simply scare you, but it is a reality that God is a God who is everywhere present all the time, knows all. Listen to these verses. The psalmist in, chapter, in 139, 7-10 says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, in the grave... You are there. If I take the wings of the morning, go as far eastward as I possibly can go, and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea to go as far west as I could possibly go, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Now the psalmist here is writing from a favorable, favorable position because he is faith in this God And for the believer, this is a beautiful promise that there's nowhere that we can go 
to flee His presence. But when you are in sin, without any hope of being made right with God outside of Christ, when you are in your sin, this is a scary, frightful, dangerous, and damning reality of God. There's nowhere you can go. You can't hide. You can't go among the trees. You can't sow enough fig leaves together to hide who and what you really are. We act just like our first parents, don't we? Instead of running to Him when we've sinned, we often think the best move is, I'll just keep it to myself. And I'll keep everyone in the dark and no one will be the wiser. And all the while, God knows. And for those of us who are believers, and if you're here and you're not a believer today, I'm going to give you the opportunity to become a believer. He's like that father and the prodigal son who says, just come home. I mean, I'm getting ahead of myself, but, but notice that when God walks into the garden, that it's God who first seeks after them. He comes looking for them. They're hiding because they hear Him coming. They attempt to hide, and God's the one who comes looking for them. And when He calls out to them, He knows everything. He's not saying, hey, where are you guys? Instead, He's asking in such a way that they would have to look around and say, indeed, where are we? Is this really where we should be? And he gives them an opportunity in his question to to come up out of the trees and to come out of their hiding. It's a gracious act of a loving father, but in order for them to receive that grace, they've got to come out of their hiding. And to which I would say to you this morning, and I'm diving into the gospel before I've ever really even showed you the gospel, but maybe today, maybe here, God's calling you out of your hiding. Maybe you're here and you've got something in your life that is secret and you think it's hidden well and no one knows and maybe no one does. I can rest assured, I can tell you with all the authority of God's word, God knows. And you can't hide from him forever. There will come a day of reckoning where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord And you will stand before him and he will deal with your sin. With you, face to face. Maybe God's calling you out of your hiding today. I'm begging you to come out of your hiding and receive the grace that is offered by God in the gospel. You see, you don't have to have God deal with you and your sin face to face. You can have him deal with Christ in your place. And one day when you stand before him, he will see you as in Christ. And your sins will be forgiven and your condemnation will be gone. But without that faith, if you remain in your hiding, there will come a day when you will stand before this terrible, wrath-filled, just God in your own skin. Notice what, what's next. Not only did they hide, it changed the relationship, our relationship with God. Not only did they hide and we hide, but also Adam began to play the victim. And he blamed God. He says, you, you often hear pastors say, Adam turns and, and he begins to blame Eve, and he does. But notice he also blames God. He says, the woman, hey, that you gave me. 
He plays the victim. And this is very different from chapter 2, verse 23, when finally, after naming all of these animals, and there's nothing that's suitable to be a helper for him, and finally God puts him to sleep, takes a rib from his side, creates the woman, wakes him up, and he sees the woman, and he exclaims with joy, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And that's just exuberant joy at the creation of woman. And now he says, that woman that you gave me, God. Such joy in an instant turns to bitterness and blame. It's common for people to try to exonerate themselves of guilt by arguing with certain, uh, that, that God made them certain ways. You've heard people say, well, you know, I know I'm angry, but my daddy was angry. Just how I am, right? Or yeah, I know I shouldn't be looking at those things, but you know, it's just how I'm wired. I have these passions and these desires and these hormones. God knows that he made me this way. We argue that God has created us with certain desires or passions or proclivities or appetites or insecurities, and we think that excuses us from the guilt of the sin that we participate in, and in doing so, we act just like our first parents. We say, God... That that you gave me makes me how I am. The third way it changes our relationship with God is they were exiled from the garden of God's presence. Verses 22 through 24, as we skip ahead in the story, it says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden, out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed a cherubim and and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. You know, one of the things people say is here, well, wasn't Satan, wasn't the serpent telling the truth when he said to Eve, you will not surely die? Well, they didn't die physically right away. They lived on. In fact, Adam lives 930 years. But they did die spiritually that day. Ephesians 2, 1 through 2, describes a descendant of Adam without Christ. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Kent Hughes describes this section of Scripture this way. He says, Adam and Eve's bodies were alive, but they were dead. As residents of the garden, they could have eaten from the tree of life and perpetuated their bodily existence indefinitely. Thus the garden would have become hell on earth, populated with the undying dead, forever living and forever dead. You see, when God says in this conversation in the Trinity, in Genesis, they've become like us, knowing good and evil. We don't want them to remain in the state if they reach out and they keep eating from this tree of life, which they're permitted to eat from, they will continue to renew their bodies and live on in this spiritually dead existence forever. So God in His mercy expels them from the presence of the garden. This was as much grace as it was punishment. And I would tell you today, church, 
I would tell you today, unbeliever, that our sin, just as much as it separated Adam and Eve from the very place where they would meet with God and fellowship with Him in perfect communion, them hearing His footsteps in the garden that day, they were not new sounds to them. They recognized the sound of God walking in the garden for a reason. They were expelled just as they were expelled from the presence of God because of their sin. In the same way, our sin drives us out of the presence of a holy God. Without rescue of God, we are hopelessly lost. We are at odds with Him. We deserve all that the just judge of the universe will hand us. That's the picture without Christmas. Without Christmas, without Jesus coming in the form of this baby and growing up and going to the cross and dying and being raised from the dead, you and I, our relationship with God is different. It is forever us hiding from God. It is, it is us playing the victim and blaming God and it's this at odds with Him back and forth. It's this being cast away from His presence, never truly knowing Him we know the common grace of living in His creation, but, but we don't know Him if there is no Christmas. second way that it changes, that Christmas, that sin changes our relationships, is it, it changes our relationships with one another. Sin changes our relationships with one another. Changed theirs. All of a sudden, they knew that they were naked. Go back to verse 7. They knew that they were naked and they suddenly felt shame. It says in verse 7, Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now I believe the reason, one of the reasons they sew fig leaves together is not because they're trying to hide behind fig leaves from God, but from one another. Chapter 2 verse 25 is a very different story. Chapter 2 verse 25 says, The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. But all of a sudden, when they've rebelled against God and taken this fruit from this forbidden tree, their eyes have been opened and now they realize their nakedness and they are ashamed to be in front of one another. Therefore, they try to cover themselves up. The love for one another that came so naturally before would now and forevermore be labor. And every one of us who has any relationship at all knows this is still true. Now, when you first meet that other person, when, when you were dating your spouse before you were married, in the early days, maybe it just came so easy. For Lana and I, we were in college, and, 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 uh, and we just, it, was, it was just so easy. I just thought of her every minute of the day. Woke up thinking about her. I still do, babe. But maybe she sat in her classes in college and wrote her name with my last name at the end. Did you do that? No, you didn't do that. You did do that, okay. <laughs> but in the beginning, it comes so easy, doesn't it? But as time goes on and years go by, it doesn't mean that you love the person any less. It just becomes labor because we're in a sinful world. Len and I grow stronger in our love for one another every year, but it doesn't come easier. It comes harder now. She would say the same thing. I hope. But you know that to be true. 
changed the way. Sin changed the way we relate to one another. Sin made this love that was natural and easy and flowing freely become work and labor. And our eyes have been opened and we're sinful people. We're filled with shame and fear. Notice also that it changed the relationship in the fact that Adam turned on Eve. Verse 12, when God does come and he says to the man, Hey, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from that tree? In verse 12, the man said, The woman you gave to me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. I would not have wanted to be in the car on the way home after that. Imagine leaving the presence of God when you've just sold your wife out, thrown her under the bus to God. Imagine the cold shoulder that Adam must have gotten. Adam turns on Eve, and Eve, I'm sure at times, turned on Adam, and we see this play out in future human relationships, namely their own sons. Cain and Abel begin to turn on one another. Cain becomes upset because his offering is not received, and Abel's is, and therefore he kills his brother. Sheds his blood, turns on him. Forever, sin has changed our relationship, the way we relate to one another, not just husband and wife, but all of humanity. We relate to one another differently now. We're out for us. If you don't believe me, I've said this before, just go to the mall or drive up and down the highway. You'll find out and you'll understand that we're out for us. The third way it changed the relationship between humanity is there would now be pain in childbirth. In verse 16, the first part of 16, I've got to hurry. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. He's not here just talking about the physical pain of the birthing process, but instead he's talking about the emotional pain that would come with raising those kids. Every mother knows that the pain doesn't end when the baby is born. The pain in a lot of ways and the joy is really just beginning Kent Hughes again says, Mothering is fraught with pain from birth onward. To be a mother is to to experience a new and ongoing index of pain. There would also be pain in the marriage. The last part of verse 16 says, Your desire, talking to the woman, Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And the temptation, when the serpent was talking to Eve, she was content in that moment to not turn to her head that was given to her by God, but instead she was content to rule by herself, to determine for herself what was right, what was wrong. Apparently Adam was just as guilty and and more so because he was there listening, standing by. We don't know that for sure, but the, 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 the verbiage there, the words that are used, the tenses of the words tell us that Adam probably was standing by passively content to let his wife lead them. As a result, men and women have always struggled with authority and roles in relationship. This was the first family also, another way that it changed relationships between people. This was the first family to feel the pain of losing a loved one. Verse 19, God is speaking to Adam and he says, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now I'm not sure who died first, Adam or Eve. 
But I know that one of them knew the sting of being a widow or a widower. Just like so many of people since then. We, we know that, that they knew the sting, the pain of losing a child. Just like so many since them. But they were the first to experience this pain. And where did it come from? It came from sin. Sin ushered all of the sin. They were never meant to go back to the dust of the earth. When God here says, look, you're going to sweat in the labor in this ground because you came from this ground and you're going to go back to this ground. They were never really meant to go back to the dust. But sin brought this in. Third this morning is this. Sin changed our relationship to our environment. The animals themselves changed. Look at verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now some have said this means that the, that the serpent prior to sin was an upright animal and that when, when, when sin came into the world that, that he was made to slither on his belly. We don't know this for sure. We, we don't know anything about that for sure. What I want to show you though is that this was a judgment pronounced on the serpent but also all the other beasts and all the other animals are included here. That all of them are cursed. He says, cursed are you above all livestock and above all all beasts, meaning that all creation fell that day. That suddenly the animals changed. It wasn't just the snakes that changed, it was all the livestock and the beasts. The the tame became wild. What once walked before Adam waiting for its name now stalked him as prey. Every year, people are attacked by sharks and mauled by bears and bitten by spiders and trampled by bulls and on and on and on. You remember Steve Irwin, the crocodile hunter? Remember how he died? We used to, and some of you are thinking, it's a wonder he didn't get killed before that. He was crazy in a lot of ways. Jumping on the backs of humongous crocodiles and alligators and all this sort of thing. And, and swimming with a stingray is what got him. Swimming with a giant stingray while filming, ironically, Ocean's Deadliest. This giant stingray stung him in the heart through the chest with this giant barb. That, this, is a, this is a post-sin world that kills the crocodile hunter. The animals changed. Not only the animals, but the ground itself changed. Verses 17 and 18. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you. Again there, he's saying, Adam, look, I put you here to lead and you've shirked your responsibility. Therefore, you're going to feel the sting of this. He says, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. The ground that had been such a source of joy for Adam in the garden that seemed to grow things almost at his verbal command. He's not deity. He's not like God who can bring things from his voice out of nothing. But it seemed just to work with him. He worked there with his hands and it just nothing fought against him. There were no weeds, no thistles, none of that. All of a sudden, the ground that had been such a source of joy to him became his enemy. It seemed to reach out with spiny tentacles 
and grab what he tried to grow. It choked out the things that he tried to work for, and he couldn't ever seem to get rid of those things that were choking those plants out. We know this all that well. I mean, we all too well. Um, we work all year long trying to get the ants out of our yards. Anybody have ant hills in your yards right now? Because it warmed up again and, and you got ant hills on the top of your ground again? You got weeds, dandelions in your yard. You ever go by, you know, driving down the road and you see just kudzu just take over a whole hillside? You say, where does that come from? That comes from sin. From that day forward, when sin entered the world, things went awry. The ground itself changed. From that day on, there would be thorns and thistles and droughts and floods and earthquakes and tornadoes and hurricanes and all more. It all goes back to sin. That list in the beginning that I named for you, every single thing on that list, every single bit of it and everything I left off can be traced back to sin. Sin is the reason why we're in this hopelessness that we're in. When I come out and I say to you, why are we singing joy to the world if we don't know why we're singing joy to the world? And you think, boy, he's down on Christmas. I'm not down on Christmas, but I want you to see the reality of the world we live in. It is a sin-tainted world that has not been made right yet. But I want you to see, even in Genesis 3, the promise thousands of years before he was born that Jesus would come. Way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, he says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Boy, that's important. His offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, some of you have maybe a translation that says, he shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. And and that's okay because that's really what it's getting at. But the word is really the same word and it really means bruise. But the idea is that you can take a strike that that leaves a bruise in the heel. But if you take a heavy blow that leaves a, a bruise in the head, in the brain, death's imminent. And the picture here is that, that Satan at the cross, when Jesus would be born and live this life, that Satan would rear his ugly head and strike again, and he would strike Jesus in the heel through the pain and the suffering that was the cross. But that when Jesus died and was raised again, that this crushing blow would be delivered to the head of Satan. That he is a defeated foe. This is the first gospel. And it's way back in Genesis. This is not, you know, all of a sudden, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is not God's plan B. Like Old Testament was plan A, that went awry. New Testament, now plan B. God's got to figure something out. God had it from the beginning. God would send a son. And his name would be Jesus. Emmanuel. This is the wonder of Christmas. We celebrate the fulfillment of this promise. The birth of the seed of the woman that would crush the head of Satan and rescue us from the hopelessness of our existence. 
Now, I had planned to read to you a bunch of Scripture from Matthew, but I want you to go home. I'm going to give you homework this morning. I want you to go home, and I want you to read Matthew chapter 1 all the way through the the end of chapter 1. And I want you to see all that could have gone wrong, all that could have stopped this promise. God, thousands of years promising to send this one, all that could have. I mean, there are people in the family tree of Jesus that we think, well, those are despicable people. How could the Messiah come from that? I mean, there's incest and rape and there's murder and adultery and and all kinds of things in the family tree of Jesus, but yet those didn't stop Him. The laws of science don't stop Him. He comes through the womb of a virgin girl. The pressures of society don't stop Him. Joseph, when he finds out, wants to put her away quietly, but is visited by angels and says, look, no, this is God doing this. And he goes up against all that the world would say to him as to why he should put her away and how he's crazy. She's lying to you, Joseph, but the pressures of society couldn't do it. The the mad jealousy of a king, Herod, when he wanted to snuff out this, this new king by killing all the babies, could have snuffed the life of Jesus out early on. But it didn't happen. God warns them and they flee to Egypt. They stay there until he dies. And then they go into Nazareth and Jesus is raised there. The trappings of Judaism and the religious people, the Pharisees and the scribes, they dogged him at every step. They tried to prove that he was, he was, he was a false prophet. He's a liar. But it didn't stop him from going to the cross. Every bit of it came true. Our God is good, and that's what we celebrate this year. We celebrate the fact that, yes, we live in this world where things are going wrong, where there is poverty and hunger and war and diminishing morality and and sex issues and marriage issues and human trafficking and abuse and orphans and all these things. We live in this world, but there's coming a day. You say, wait a minute, if He came and He lived and He died, and that's the great hope and that's what we celebrate, why do we still have these things going on? Revelation chapter 21, 1 through 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Look. Think back to Genesis 3. They're hiding because they hear Him walking in the garden. Now they're adorned as a bride and He's coming in. There is no fear anymore. This is going to happen. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also He said, Write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. If the Same God here is making to us a promise that one day He's going to bring all this to be. 
If it's the same God who promised thousands of years to deliver the seed of the woman who was named Jesus and fulfilled all the prophecy that he did, can we not today with assurance say, yes, yes, I will trust this same God? And I'm not through. Listen to Revelation 22, verses 1 through 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life. There's the tree of life again. They're granted access to the tree of life again. With its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Everything that went wrong that day in the garden when man and woman decided to rebel against their maker and choose to go their own way and determine for themselves what was right and wrong. Everything that went wrong that day because he promised to send the seed of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent and did so, and now promises one day to come again and to right every wrong, we can say with the writer of Revelation, we can say with John, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. This Christmas season, when you sing joy to the world, sing it loudly. Sing it with passion and fervor. Because you know that we truly do have joy in the midst of great suffering and pain because the Savior came. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that as we've taken this look at, God, your word in the first gospel and what you've given to us, God, I pray that you would take it and, God, that you would Speak loudly to those who are here. Lord, help them to hear it. Be very clear, God, to them. God, I pray that in this room that you would call people out of their sin. You would call people out of their hiding. And God, that they would find grace and mercy as they turn to you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jed is going to lead us in a time of, of reflection and response. And what I want you to think about today is really all that we've said. But if you're here today and you're in hiding still, you're in your sin, and you've never, you've never trusted this one that would crush the head of the serpent. You're still trying to do things on your own. You're still trying to choose your own way, determine what's right and wrong for yourself. Take an honest look at yourself and say, am I in the presence of God or am I on the outs with him? Am I feeling the effects of these choices, this sin in my life? Am I ready to stand before him one day? And today, if you're still in hiding, let me beg you to come out. To come out of your hiding and turn to Christ. The Bible says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Those three questions that I asked those two gentlemen in the pool earlier. When you trust Christ as your only hope of salvation, believing that God is raised from the dead and by His power turn away from sin to follow after Him, the Bible says, no, it's not going to be perfect, 
but you will be perfectly saved. And today, I just want to encourage you to trust Christ. Maybe you're here today and that, that's you, that needs to be you. Maybe you're here today and you've thought about joining this church, but you never have. And maybe today you said, this is where I believe God's leading us to. Maybe you're here today and you're a believer and these are just old truths brought to new light for you and you just want to sing as Jed leads us to sing and celebrate what Christmas really is. Whatever it is that God calls you and leads you to in this response, don't harden your hearts, but respond to Him. Let's worship our God. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.